I got my mic on. That's why I was sitting there playing around with it. I was like, what's going on with this? Oh, look at that cute little mic. That's right. Yeah. It's like you have like a flower or something on the. Now, my vlogging mic. Oh, right. vlogging? Oh, for like racing? Racing, motorcycles. I'm going to start. Why do you think I had you cut that logo for me? Right. I'm going to start trying to mess around with YouTube a little bit. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Good things. Yeah. So it's hard. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sergeant Lay, you were saying that um, the cross training. So was that your first choice then when you cross train? So initially I wanted to do mental health for the ADAPT program, um, the addiction counseling aspect of it. But upon doing the interviews through the retraining process, uh, religious affairs was just really the, the better way to go. Um, we can still do the same, like caring for people and have more fun events and more time, like meeting the people where they're at and not bound by like clinical guidelines, essentially. Right. You know, we don't have just, hey, you have appointments at this time and this is the only care we can provide, so. Okay, nice, well, that's good. That's good that uh, it turned out. Was your tech school at, down at Maxwell? It was. Okay. So I always saw, and I don't know if it had changed, but so we, our tech school is in the, you know, it's at Maxwell, it's where are the Jack school. Ooh. And then I think uh, maybe it, it used to be right next to it. I don't know where it is now, but. Yes. Well, the chaplain school still is, but the religious affairs airmen just, they moved to Keesler um, the beginning of the fiscal year last mm -hmm. year, so. Interesting. What's going on, Sergeant Lust? You know, just another day in paradise. That's right. But now you're all you're all in lockdown, huh? Yeah, we're. It's a soft lockdown. The Air Force is still kind of allowed to go around and do certain things, but yeah, essentially they've everything that we had up to this point has pretty much regressed back into us not really being able to go out into the general public area. They even just now released some more guidance that they're not letting dining in on the establishment anymore. So it's only takeaway or drive-through on base. So there's wow. some crazy stuff. Yeah, there's just huge cluster popped up and things kind of, I don't want to say they blew out of, um, out of control. Uh, they're trying to control it as much as they can, but I don't think that they expected it to blow out as big as it did here. So we're essentially getting a second wave, but um, you know, we're, we're the reason why the second wave's coming around. There's been a few cases reported off installation, but we're not sure what exactly is the cause of that. So. <clears throat> right. Lockdown. <laughs> yeah, no, that's definitely, definitely unfortunate over there because I mean Okinawa is the place to to be outside and be having fun and be doing things <laughs> well luckily there's a broken up tropical depression that's ruining the island oh, right okay. now so. all right so there's two nice. reasons then <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness yeah yeah we just had a hailstorm yesterday and I've heard about these no exaggeration there is not a single vehicle on base that was not damaged Including yours. 
Oh yeah. I mean, I don't care about mine. Mine's like a little old beat up, <laughs> but, um, I would say probably one in every 10 vehicles, there was a broken window or a shattered windshield Ooh. out of the, like how many ever vehicles were parked on base and the storm, it came in, it dumped right on the base and then it dissipated as it moved out. Yes. <laughs> wow. They were like uh, target acquired. Yeah, like uh, a little smaller than probably golf ball size. Oof, man! <laughs> Get hit on the old noggin by one of those. I bet that'd be a good time. I could feel it shaking the ground. It was crazy from inside the building. You could feel it. Yeah, I'm good. I'll take my typhoons. It's, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> Typhoons aren't too bad. Typhoons aren't too bad. I was just telling our, our SJA, uh, he was saying, oh, you'll have hurricanes or typhoons. <clears throat> it's like, it's pretty safe for the most part in Okinawa anyways. Um, so this is, I think this is the fourth episode now. We've had seven episodes. This is the fourth episode on the podcast where I have people from Japan <laughs> on the, um, as guests. So I guess I don't want to let go or something. But <laughs> I gotta keep, one, yeah. gotta keep calling over there. But um, so for this one, uh, it's really my attempt to get to know more about different career fields. Like in the legal world, we deal a lot with other career fields as far as, you know, well, as far as Article 15s and as far as court martials and as far as discharges. And not many of us have had you know, a lot of experiences or really know what these airmen are actually going through or what their culture is like. And I think at every single AFSC, and obviously from being a PME instructor, I was able to learn that there is a, a specific culture to each AFSC, there's specific culture to each squadron, that it's, you know, very different than how the rest of the Air Force operates. And definitely for us, right, if, if all we've known in our career field it's still pretty heavy on the, on the retrainees, but we also have pipeliners now, and we're actually going to be getting more pipeliners um, down the line. And they're never going, going to experience life in a squadron, in a regular squadron, never going to experience, you know, what, what that life is like. And, it's, and our, our attorneys really, I mean, most of them have never operated in an in a Air Force squadron. So this is really just an attempt to start with vehicle maintenance, um, to take a, uh, to explore a little bit about what the logistics readiness squadron is all about um, and kind of provide a little perspective and maybe it can help us enhance our understanding of what the dealings are uh, within the logistics readiness squadron. Uh, so that's really that uh, the attempt and what we're trying to do to better, to better know what happens uh, in the AFSCs. But before we, before we do that, um, let's just open it up for introductions. So Sergeant Lust, if you want to start, then tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm Tech Sergeant Douglas Lust. I actually was, or I am currently a PME instructor and Sergeant Perez was my boss at the time. Uh, I do come from a prior vehicle maintenance background and I've been in for about 10 years. So spent five years in England, now I'm five years here in Japan and 
my time as a PME instructor is coming up very soon here, uh, IPCS in April of next year, if the stars align and I'm allowed to leave. If not, then who knows how long I'll project to be stuck here until the COVID-19 pandemic kind of blows over. But yeah, that's a little bit about me. Thank you. And Sergeant Lay. My name is Staff Sergeant Lathaniel Lay. I have been in for just shy of 10 years as well. Uh, I started out vehicle maintenance. I was vehicle maintenance for nine years. And then I have just recently retrained into the career field of religious affairs airmen. So I work on the chapel staff. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you both for agreeing to do this as well. Um, this hopefully it um it it reaches quite a quite a lot of people and help once again understand a little bit better about uh, the vehicle maintenance career field so we'll just start with uh with the question of how did you end up being vehicle maintenance how did that go about is that something that you wanted to do when you joined how did that happen so I'll start there. I, like most other people, filled out the list with the recruiter and I had security forces on there and having to get waivers to get accepted into the Air Force, I thought for sure I would get a security forces position. Uh, the recruiter told me, you know, it's going to be six to nine months before you hear from us with a job and then you'll ship out after that. It wasn't even maybe two weeks later he called me and said i have a vehicle maintenance position and you leave in six weeks um so it was on the list i had a an interesting theory behind it my dad was a mechanic so i just assumed that through osmosis i would be good at the job so that's why i put it on the list <laughs> interesting okay so you already knew coming in you accepted the job six weeks later out yes, to sir. basic <clears throat> all right sergeant lust how's uh <laughs> oh man i know you know that story but uh i'll tell the rest of the world so my situation was not quite like that um i was just trying to get out i was trying to finish my degree my associate's degree and I knew I wasn't going to have enough money to go on and finish my bachelor's trying to work a full-time job and do full-time uh, college and then try to come in as an officer. Uh, the Air Force has always kind of been my calling. I did Air Force JROTC and my dad was in the military. He was a staff sergeant when he got out at 10 years. So I went down to the recruiter's office because I just sent both my buddies, both my best friends in high school, to the military. Uh, one joined the Air Force, he's security forces. The other one joined the Army, he's out now. But I went down there, I was like, hey, you know, uh, I need to get out. I need to go, what do you got? And he's like, well, I don't really have anything. I can send you open mechanical or open general or one of the open fields. And the first thought that popped in my head thinking about my dad is, man, I, I really don't wanna be security forces. So I completely just bypassed open general and said, you know what, working with my hands might be kind of cool. Let's see what kind of job that I can get. And uh, I put an open mechanical in. 
then I waited my full, my full depth program time, like the six and a half months before they're like, Hey, we don't know what you're doing. Hop on this bus. You're going to Lackland. And then it wasn't until about five weeks into basic training after they said, or sorry, sec second week when you put down all those jobs on your list to say, Hey, this is what we have available. Put eight down because you're going to get one of these. Uh, and this so happened to be the last job on my list because I didn't want to be a telephone pole operator or whatever the job was at the time. So I was like, ah, I'll just throw this as a place setter at the bottom of the list just in case. And then uh, bottom went to top. So here I am. What was the duty title? Huh? Telephone I, it was pole? like the, I think it was the cable dogs, what they call the cable oh. dogs. Uh, the ones who run like telephone or, or, uh, underground wire for lines. I'm not sure what it was. I just remember seeing it and saying, I don't want to do that. I'd rather do vehicle maintenance before I did that. And then vehicle maintenance became my number one. My actual, my first talk, and I still remember it too, even 10 years from this day, because I thought, man, that'd be a cool job, was the B2 uh, structural mm. metal tech. That's the job I was bidding for. Lo and behold, if I had gotten that job, I would have been able to go to like all of one base and that's it. So I'm kind of glad that things went the way that did because of the ability to explore the world. But this was definitely the last pick job that I had in mind. Okay. All right. So you get vehicle maintenance. Both of you get vehicle maintenance and you graduate basic training. And then where do you, where do you head out to? <laughs> oh, Port Wanimi. Yeah, Port Wanimi, California. It's a, a naval station, a CB post. So, yeah, that is not what I was expecting when my orders got cut. It said Port Wanimi. I'm like, where is this? <laughs> Why? This doesn't sound like an Air Force base. Why am I going here for tech school? These must be wrong. <laughs> now uh, you're going to Naval Air Station or Naval Station for Wainimi. It's like, wow, okay. All right. And that is a detachment, right? From the 345th? Ooh, that's a good question. So the first 10 weeks of the tech school is joint with our counterparts in the Navy. So we all learn the general um, aspects of vehicles. And then ooh, it is a detachment out of Lackland where we finish up the last six weeks of our tech school. And that's called like the unique schoolhouse. Um, I cannot remember. 341, 340. It's out of black. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's too long now. Um, so what? So you get there, and then what do you do? Like, is is it separated by different blocks? Um, how is it? Is it um, like learning the actual concepts and the books, and then you actually do hands on? Like, how does it work? It's it's a back and forth. So you do theory, and then you do hands on right after. But we do it in block segments. So the first thing that you learn about is internal combustion engines. And like literally you go into class, 
they give you like a day of book work and then you go, they give you a TO of exactly how to strip down and put back together this four, four cylinder engine that they have set up in the shop. Or at least when I went through, when we went through, that's what it started off with. I'm not sure what they run now for Common Core over there, but yeah, they had it blocked out to different systems. So one week you would do internal combustion engines. Next week you would do diesel engines. And then another week you would do brake steering suspension. So they would block it out. You would have a theory portion. You'd also have progress checks and you'd have progress checks both on hands-on and the book material. So not only were you taking paper tests, you were also doing hands-on to make sure that you're not gonna kill someone out there because there's a lot of sharp moving parts that can take a finger or hand off and they wanna make sure you can operate all that equipment safely. Okay, good. And then like Sergeant Lay said, you have, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, like Sergeant Lay said, once you get done with the Common Core, then we move into the Air Force specialty vehicles. So this was one of those, hey, these are going to be unique, hence the term unique. These are gonna be unique vehicles that you're gonna work on that kind of go away from the general systems that you work on. There's a lot of commonalities, but there's going to be a lot of differences. So we're gonna give you specialized training because these vehicles don't just operate as a vehicle. There's other systems on the vehicle you need to learn about in order to be able to fix it, like our de-icers. Those are meant to de-ice airplanes in cold weather environments, but it's not just the chassis. It's not just an engine, brake, steering, suspension, all that stuff. You have the heater unit in the back that you have to figure out, okay, well, how's that work? How does that heater fire? You know, what temperature does it need to be at before it'll set off the igniters or it will shut the entire system down because it can't spark. So, yeah. Interesting. <clears throat> Definitely interesting. So for both of you, then, what was your first impression of the career field? So now you've got it, you're getting this training, right? And, and, and I'm, I guess I'm talking more about within tech school before you actually get to the operational side of vehicle maintenance. For me, it was, it was amazing just the act of being in the Air Force. Like it was such an achievement. And then to be learning such a useful skill um, and just the, the gender ratio there too. It's not a heavily like manned field of females. So it was just, it was nice to be able to hold my own and, you know, learn these lessons and do the work alongside other counterparts. Uh, definitely felt pretty fixed up, fired up, you know, VM thinking now, now I'm going to have skills outside of the Air Force if this isn't something that I do long term. Okay, nice, nice, nice. How about you, Sergeant Lust? Uh, I... I was hesitant at first. I was in denial because I knew that where the placement of this job was on my list. And I was <laughs> like, man, I really didn't want to do that. But uh, I don't have a choice now. I signed that contract for four years. Thank God I did four years. Um, I didn't know what to expect. And then I got there and ice really brought me in. Once we started stripping down the internal combustion engine, 
the amount of the only maintenance background I had before I joined the military was I knew how to change the oil on my motorcycle. That was it. I didn't know anything else. Uh, you know, I tried to dabble, but I wasn't too good at it. So I kind of came in open-minded and I was just like, you know what, let's see what this is about. And as soon as we started stripping down that engine and put it back together and you start it for the first time, I was like, man, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to love this career field. We're going to be able to rebuild all these different things and work on all these different systems on these vehicles. This is going to be awesome. This is going to be a lot of fun. So in tech school, my first impression, I enjoyed it. Uh, and, you know, the tech school was, was pretty easy-ish for me. Like, you know, I was sitting there acing all my tests, acing all my progress checks. So I was like, man, this is going to be awesome. I like this career field. Uh, that was my initial impression. All right. So let's transition that now into the Operation Air Force. So you get to the Operation Air Force, vehicle maintenance, first impression. Oh, okay. Um, well... I, I remember because I was a little nervous. England was my first base and I've only been to two, but one of the reasons why I joined the Air Force was because I wanted to travel and this was my first taste of it. Um, I had my sponsor and I asked them certain questions here and there, but I really wasn't getting too much communication back. And pretty much when I got there, it was like, hey, you need to find this bus that's going to take you to the base. So I get to Lake and Heath and well, I get to Heathrow and I didn't know where the bus was and no one seemed to know. And, and I was like freaking out. I was like, man, it is this is weird. Like, does this usually happen? Am I going to just get left out here and uh, not be able to make my way back to the base? Luckily I asked enough people and I saw other people who I determined were military um, and I, they helped me out to get on the right bus to get over there. Uh, and then I had to call the shop when I first got to Lake and Heath because there was no one there waiting. So I was just like, man, uh, okay, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know where I'm staying. Uh, <laughs> but then once I got picked up and we started going, uh, everything was good. Um, I came in a little hard headed. I was one of those individuals that thought, hey, um, because I have an associate's degree, I'm smarter than other people. Um, you know, uh, this is above, like, I'm above this, I'm above this. And I got humbled very quickly in my first month. And it changed my entire mentality of how to tackle being in the military. Because I, I had done a couple jobs and I messed those jobs up. Um, I blew like 10 gallons of oil all over our entrance way to one of our shops because I didn't put a oil filter on a dump truck right. Um, I had stripped out a steering knuckle, the, the spindle on a steering knuckle on a Ford Ranger and that down that vehicle for like three weeks. And I walked in there acting like I knew and my supervisors at the time were like, cool, you think you know everything? Go ahead then. Uh, and then once I hit that point of defeat of like, I don't know what I'm doing, I went in the office and I was like, sir, I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. Like, I, I really don't know what I'm doing. I want to learn. And uh, from that point on, you know, I just had an open mind about it. But my initial hit was uh, my own mentality kind of sunk me a little bit. 
And then once I got past that, uh, things got better. Uh, and my first year there was amazing because I had such a quality team of who I worked with and the shop that I was a part of. I was like on cloud nine. Once I got my groove and I was figuring out how to do things, I, I loved it for the first year. So that was my initial impression of being once I got to operational. Okay, great. Oh, I was I was over overexcited. My first assignment, I was going to go to Vandenberg, California, which was going to be right up the way the coast from Port Wanini, and so that was okay. And it was something new. And then I get pulled into the office, and notification assignment changed. And at the time, I was going with one of my best girlfriends through the tech school to Vandenberg. Well, thankfully, both of our orders got changed and we both got sent to Luke Air Force Base in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, the comfort of having the familiarness of having a friend going there as well really helped ease the transition. Um, she had the room set up for me. She made sure it was clean. Like I said, there's not a lot of females, right? So I had a male sponsor and he didn't care that there were cobwebs and bugs and the room was dirty you know he he did his job he got me a room so you know she she really made sure that my welcome was warm into the dorm environment and i'll say i couldn't have asked for a better first base um it was a small-ish shop everybody all the ncos had been there quite a while um everybody was really tight knit. Uh, the airmen, the NCOs, everybody was just, they'd all deployed together multiple times because for whatever reason that base just deploys a lot. And um, they were they were super helpful and just welcoming. Um, I mean, yeah, guys will be guys and do silly things, you know, they, we went, they would do like whoever can eat this hundred piece pizza, you know, I'll give you 20 bucks and whoever can chug this soy sauce, I'll give you 20 bucks. But, you know, just really silly, stupid guy things. Um, but I felt very welcomed. Um, like Sergeant Lust had said, right. There's technical orders or TOs and, it's it's troubleshooting so my supervisor sadly he didn't want to be a supervisor so like week one on the job he's like all right here's your job here's the book figure it out <laughs> um but i mean really the book breaks it down so i learn better with somebody talking me through things i'm not like um a reader to retain or learn information so that was a bit of a learning curve for me but when you have the resources um, and then everybody that was in the shop so there were there were definitely people that wanted to help me learn and um, it was a really it was a really cool experience at my first base okay good well I'm, I'm glad to learn that or I'm glad to know that both of your experiences, at least the first impression, was overall positive. <laughs> right? That's not definitely not always the case with uh, with every career field. Um, but I'm kind of interested also in the culture within 
the within LRS. So talk to me about LRS belonging to the LRS um, squadron. Um, what was that like? What's your impression of the uh, of LRS overall? So it's a big squadron. So the logistics readiness squadron, or depending on you know what base you're at, you typically have a refueling section, you have a vehicle operator section, you have a supply section. Um, and, and there was a little bit of rivalry between the flights, uh, but being an airman in the dorms, we were all housed together. So for the most part, you know, we got along there. We didn't necessarily work together, but it is it is very interesting being for me to be have been a part of the LRS that you know nothing moves on base without us and if anybody needs to be able to be tied into the mission that was the simplest way for me to understand it literally nothing moves on base without us if we're not fixing the refuelers jets aren't getting fueled if we're not fixing the vehicle supplies aren't getting delivered so being in the LRS, it's definitely, we're just a little cog in the machine, but a very important like gear to keep things going. Good. Yeah, no, that's, that's great, right? To understand like the bigger picture as well and the importance um, of the squadron and the mission and our contributions to the mission as well. And Sergeant Lust, any, uh, anything else to add? Not really. I mean, she pretty much hit the, the nail on the head when it comes to being an LRS. It is highly competitive. You're always going to hear uh, vehicle maintainers because for whatever reason, trend, whatever you want to call it, we usually see, we don't win a lot of awards. Uh, and we're always kind of putting ourselves up against like, well, you know, if we were this section, if we were supplier, if we were POL, or if we were ATOC or TMO or the Loggies, we'd win awards, but all we do is fix vehicles. Um, and they're the ones who are actually going out there and, and touching the mission more than we are. We're the support that are fixing the vehicles so the individuals can go and touch the mission and get things done. And that kind of caused a little bit of disparity every now and again. I, if you ask any vehicle maintainer, I'm pretty sure they'll tell you at their respective base who's winning awards in the squadron. And that kind of creates that rivalry. Uh, it's not really like a deep-rooted rivalry. But yeah, there, there's definitely that little bit of uh, rivalry there. Uh, it doesn't create any animosity or anything. We're all there for a job, a mission. We get whatever we need to done. Um, it's just sometimes VM can feel a little underappreciated in LRS compared to the other squadrons, but then we feel like we get farmed out the most because usually we have a pretty decent sized flight, but everyone sits there and looks and thinks like, oh yeah, you know, you're all just sitting around fixing vehicles or not fixing vehicles. Um, go help out augmentee ATOC or go help augmentee supply. Uh, the first year that I was at Lake and Heath, um, I had to do escort duty because I was part of FTAC. Uh, you did two weeks of escort duty before you actually went to your shop. Um, and then I walked straight into, I remember it, 
because as soon as I got to the shop, they, that day were like, Hey, we're working 12 hour shifts. We just had LCAP failure. Supply fell, failed the LCAP. Some of you are going to go and augment and help supply out. The rest of you are going to work 12 hour shifts here at VM. And uh, yeah, it just, um, you know, it just felt like it took a little bit to actually get to be able to do my job because it seems like we got pawned off a lot. Like, oh yeah, you know, we can give up and go help here and we can go help there. And, uh, but it just didn't seem like the, there was too much correlation between everything that we were doing and, and that feeling of like, we're up there with everyone else in the squadron. Uh, that was just my personal take though. Uh, it wasn't until a few years after I became a UDM that I really started to see like how LRS worked because I had to work with every single section at that point. But that's another story for another time. <laughs> All right, good. Well, here's the question, right? Like how often did you see or did you interact with your first sergeant and how often did you see or did you interact with the commander? Never. Not one. Um, the only interaction that I had at Lake and Heath was commander's calls. Until I became a UDM. Then I saw the commander like once every few days because I had to go in the office and talk to him about reporting things and whatnot. Uh, but as a vehicle maintainer, the only time you see the first sergeant or the commander is if someone gets promoted or you're at a commander's call. Or you get an article 15. Or you get an article 15. So right. I'm kind of a schmoozer. Um, so my first base, I was a part of like the squadron or the kids Christmas party that the commander's wife was doing. So he was there. Or my second duty location, it was a very small unit. And so I saw the commander a lot more often or the first sergeant. Um, and I've always just appreciated the first sergeants, honestly. When I got to Kadena, I would make sure if I was in the squadron building, I was going to pop in and say hi to the first sergeant. Like, they work really hard and they don't always get to do fun things. So sometimes just popping in and saying hi and, you know, giving them a little break from the rigmarole or the chaos that they get to uh, navigate. So... But yeah, I kind of, I, uh, I do my best to stay away from the commander if I can. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And that is different. That is definitely a different, uh, a lot different than other, other units, other squadrons and uh, how other people operate as well. Um, because other people see the commanders a lot more often. And here it's like, it's just so distant. Um, so Talk to me about what a day in the life of a vehicle maintainer looks like from two perspectives, the airman perspective and the NCO perspective. So what, what, what does that look like? So I would say depending on the unit, because I joined later. Um, I wasn't 18. I was well into my 20s. And so I wasn't treated as such, like I was treated as I am, like 
older than half of the NCOs. I'm older than half of the master sergeants that I've worked with, even as an airman or a staff sergeant. So there's been that little bit of difference. Um, as an airman, I, I really, there is a lot of responsibility put on you in the sense that you're, you're expected to work hard and you're expected to get things done with little to no direct supervision. Like you don't have somebody there guiding you through things. Like you're being a mechanic, you're just expected to be able to figure it out. Um, so that was my experience as kind of an airman. As an NCO, as soon as I worked at becoming proficient at my job, they then placed me in an office because they were like, nope, you're organized, you keep your ducks in a row, and so we need you in the, like, the parts procurement section. So I didn't have a, a whole lot of experience as an actual wrench turner as an NCO. Okay. Interesting, uh, Sergeant Lust. Um, okay, yeah, day to day, well, in about a minute and 40 seconds uh, for airmen, and then we can come back. But day to day for airmen, uh, I don't want to say it was, it was pretty brainless, but when I came in, it was all about, I had an airman that was next to me that was going to help train me and get me up, spun up on the job. Um, but yeah, it's like uh, Sergeant Lay said, you're expected to come in and work hard with a little direction. Uh, your NCOs are pretty much saying, hey, I need these jobs. Here's this work order. Back when we had paper work orders, they're like, hey, here's this work order. I need all these items closed out on it uh, and go. Uh, and then you had to pretty much go and search for yourself. Like, okay, well, where do I get a technical order? Do I go to a library? Uh, before ETIMS came up and then ETIMS came up and it was like, all right, well, how do I get this digital version of the TO? Um, you know, just finding out the little things. And then if you had an additional duty as an airman, you were expected that, okay, on top of being able to work these day-to-day -day jobs, I need to also make sure that I'm taking care of my additional duties like has waste monitor or fuel tank custodian, whatever the case may be, you're very work focused. I go out there, do your job, uh, and do it to the best that you can. If you need me, I'll be in the office. Uh, unless you were working with someone that was training you. Money down from the insurance company, the other part. You better silence your phone. It's because I'm on my laptop. Like it can cannot... silence your notifications. You're driving me nuts. <laughs> You're like a student to me right now, and I just want to be like, oh. <laughs> Teaching virtually, I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh, people do like to get their notifications while you're teaching? Yeah, man. And you'll be like, hey, so-and-so asked, answer this question I have. And then they'll be talking out here, bing, 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 bing. I'm like, boy, I'm going to strangle you. No, my I phone is silent, but my laptop's on because they're both like Apple products. Yeah. It's, yeah. I don't mm. know. <laughs> uh, so, Sergeant Lus, I think we left with you explaining the airman perspective um, uh, from a vehicle maintainer, and were you gonna? Were you? I'm not sure if you were done with your. Sure, I can. I can finish that off. So yeah, I mean, it's just 
there's a lot of day-to-day that you're expected to do um, without very much direction. There is direction there, but it's very light direction. It's more of they want to see what you're going to do as an airman. Are you going to go and get those jobs and keep plodding along, or are they going to try to find you in the TO library because you're just trying to skate work and they're finding you in other places other than the shop floor working and jobbing? Um, but I mean, as long as you come in with the mentality of I'm ready to go to work and get, have my coveralls on, ready to rock and roll by the designated time, which is like 7, 7.30, 6.30, depends on what shop you're working for. As long as you had your coveralls ready to work and you're like, if you don't do morning meetings, you're checking your toolbox out at the start of the duty day, uh, pretty much everyone just kind of leaves you alone. They expect you, especially if they deem you as a hard worker, if anything, you'll start getting farmed out to go help other jobs because they're like, hey, you're pretty high speed. Uh, you're a five level. Where can we use you? These people are struggling. Can you go help them? You're intuitive. Maybe you can help us figure this problem out. Uh, you'll get pulled depending on how much effort you put into the job. Damn. Okay. <clears throat> awesome. And so let's see the next question that I had. So legal troubles, right? Have you had airmen or have you known of anyone that had gone through the legal process as far as either an article 15 or a court martial? So back to, you know, the squadron rivalry, right? Like at my first base, it seemed to have always been a different flight in the squadron that found themselves in those situations by the choices they made. I personally, I don't think I experienced any airmen. I mean, there were you know, typical behavior corrections that were adjusted with LOCs or LORs. Um, but as far as Article 15s, I wasn't aware. Um, if there were, they kept them kind of under wraps. So yeah, my second base, I was the only airman. So I wasn't getting in trouble. But um, my third base being a much bigger flight, I, I there was a lot more um, mischief to be had because there were a lot more airmen. So, Sergeant Lust? Yeah, I mean, we kind of run a tight shift with VM. Um, you don't get a lot of issues. I'm, I'm just trying to rack my brain. I don't think I've seen anyone get an Article 15. Not, in, not out of VM. Um, I did see a lot more issues here at this base though. Um, like the airman that told uh, the, was it the chief staff of the air force and his wife to get the F out of the road. Um, and they tracked him down and stopped him at the gate cause they were trying to go to uh, gate two and drink. And the chief staff of the air force called security forces up and had him pulled over and, uh, they had a very stern talking to. Oh, wow. Well, that happened when? That was back in 1617. Mm -hmm. I know you remember that. <laughs> that was a, but 
besides like small things, you don't really get a lot of people acting crazy. It's like Tarlay said, most of the time it's the other parts of the squadron that you hear all the stories about like, oh yeah, you know, did you hear that supply just got a DUI or fuels did this or, you know, they flipped the vehicle or something. And you're just like, what is going on? And we're just sitting over here in our corner, like, oh, we kind of just stick together and, and do our own thing. Yeah. I think that's the other thing is back in England, at least we had a very tight culture there. So, I mean, those were the people that if you're with them on duty, you're probably hanging out with them off duty. And we kind of just bounced each other out. Yeah, we'd get some crazy nights going and, you know, some really, really irresponsible things could possibly happen. But we always had each other's back. And I think we all, I don't want to say covered each other's tracks, but we took care of each other. Um, over the years and the, the culture change in the Air Force altogether, I feel like we've spaced out a lot more. Um, not to say that, you know, uh, a drinking culture is a good culture, but, you know, just that partying and drinking and being together with each other all the time kind of created more of a tight culture than what we have now. Uh, now things are, there's a lot of things that are frowned upon and um, you just, it just doesn't feel like you have that family-esque feeling as much as I did back in 2011 when I first came in. But nothing crazy, nothing crazy really. Yeah, by no means are vehicle maintenance, you know, <clears throat> angels. Um, but I do, like Sergeant Lust said, I think it is just that bond. Um, you're hanging out together and there usually seems to be at least one voice of reason before things get too far. Um, and we PT hard. So yeah, they, it's, it's a lot of hard work. And so I don't know if in that, you know, it just kind of keeps you a little more in the rails. One of our chiefs would say like, you know, you, you have guardrails, right? Like you're driving and that's what they're there for is because sometimes you might swerve, sometimes you might drift, but as long as you got those guardrails and I really do feel like VM is just kind of those guardrails for the rest of the team and keeps you in there. Okay, interesting. And did you seem to have a pretty good understanding of the things that you could do that would have landed you in article 15 or, or in a court martial? Like, did you know the things that, okay, if I do this, I've definitely, I'm in article 15 realm. Oh yeah. Our chiefs or our higher management have told us stories about some of the things VM might've done back in the days um, that would land you in hot water. I think the stories and experiences from other individuals that in the past culture, when the war was really going off um, and people were just doing weird things to unwind and whatnot, uh, definitely heard of a lot of stories of mischief that would land you Article 15s. And they kind of pass that off to us. And we just kind of know like, all right, this is the line that's drawn in the sand that I don't need to cross. 
uh, unless I want to end up like Sergeant so-and-so or senior so-and-so. So. Right, because, I mean, at Kadena, it's, it's, Kadena's a little bit different because the curfew, right? The curfew violation, which you, which you would think that it's light, right? You would think, well, that's innocent enough. I violate curfew, whatever, right? But it isn't, right? Like, curfew violation will land you in Article 15. I mean, that's, that's where it starts. That's where it begins. Um, yeah. So in the vehicle maintenance culture, was that understanding there? And were people trying to not get caught outside of the curfew hours? I'd say, yeah. I mean, I, I knew like from the get-go by multiple people, it's like, don't break curfew. If, if you're going to go out drinking, be out by 12. That's part of the reason why I don't really drink anymore. Um, back in England, we didn't have a curfew. You would go to the club and it was light out at 10 p.m. and you'd come out of the club at like 4 a.m. and it's still light out because summertime, the, you didn't get a lot of nighttime. Uh, but here, it was just like, it was a hard line. They're like, don't get caught breaking curfew. This is the general going rate. At least that's what I was told. I don't know about Sergeant Lay, but when I got here, um, Sergeant Hood pretty much took care of us. And he let us know uh, one of the best mass sergeants we, we probably had in vehicle maintenance. He let us know like what not to do and what to do on this island, what to be careful about. He made sure that we were set straight before he released us into the wild, essentially. Yeah, so having a clear cut, like, hey, this is what will get you in Article 15. I don't think it was until maybe two years ago, so I've been wearing the uniform for eight years at that time, that I even quite understood in Article 15. Um, I mean, I didn't want paperwork. I didn't want an LOC, and so I never really thought what was past that, right? So in ALS, they teach you the progressive process. Um, but yeah, no, I was never like, hmm, well, what is going to get me an article 15? I mean, I'm pretty sure drinking and driving, uh, would, and then other very extreme crimes, but those, yeah, those weren't even, wasn't even really, yeah, those weren't even an option. Um, neither is drinking and driving, but as you mentioned, the Japan laws, um, one drink, which is not a culture that we're taught in America per se, or the guidelines that we know in America, if you have a drink with dinner, you're not going to be above the driving limit. That's not the case in Japan. So, um, yeah, that was probably the only thing that I, cause if I do have a drink, I knew I wasn't going to drive. That was probably the only thing that I was like, okay, this, this could correlate to an article 15 right? or the curfew thing. <laughs> Absolutely. And that, that's very interesting, right? Cause if you're concerned with not getting an LOC, then obviously you're pretty far from that article 15 realm. So that's pretty good. Um, so now I'm not sure. And again, this is within your culture, within your understanding and vehicle maintenance about the legal office. Did you know the legal office had enlisted members? Did you know it had paralegals? What was your perspective or perception? Did, had you made up any perhaps stereotypes 
about attorneys and paralegals? The first time I explored the legal office at Lakenheath was like my four year mark because I got an LOR in the unit deployment management office. Uh, yeah, that's that's another story. I wasn't in VM, but uh, yeah, that's the first experience I ever had with even trying to go to legal. And when I went there, and I'm, I'm sure this is standard practice, but um, they pretty much told me to just send them an email. Um, and that was it. Like I had email communication and the, the person who was helping me didn't really help me too much. I mean, they just said, you know, pretty much there was nothing I could do and that was it. And I was like, okay, well, that's cool. <laughs> um, I guess I'll just go ahead and uh, eat this one. Well, there's something uh, you can do, right? What was the one thing you could do? Was it the 80s, 80 Airman Defense? Well, right, it's the Airman Defense Council, which, I mean, not the Airman Defense Council. I'm sorry, the Area Defense Council. <laughs> Defense Council. I got well, that's that. That's why I emailed, and that's where they were like, "You can't really do too much with this." The, uh, oh, right. So that's where you went. You went to the Area Defense Council, and they were like, "You can't do." But what can you do? Though I mean, you, you. It's not like you can't. What can you do? I, I don't know. I don't know what you're. Oh, well, you got an LOR, and you oh. got three days to do what? Oh man. I'll, yeah, we won't talk about that because that was <laughs> uh, I did a rebuttal. I actually had a two page rebuttal ready to go. Um, but I talked to my first sergeant about it. Uh, and he my first sergeant at a time. Uh, we sat down, we talked for about a half hour. And it, it pretty much turned into, hey, sometimes things happen and they're not within your realm of control, but you got to accept responsibility for it, you know, lay on the sword. And he's like, you know, by all means, you have the option. If you want to, to do this rebuttal, then lay it on there and we'll, we'll see what happens. And, or you can just lay on the sword. Uh, and that's kind of what he was encouraging of. And that's what I did. I laid on the sword. I did a, a quick rebuttal um, that was, half-hearted <laughs> um, I was sorry for what had happened but I wasn't sorry for the other things I had put in there and how the whole situation unveiled um, but yeah I put something in there and just kind of ran with it so yeah and I don't I didn't really have an understanding of legal until getting to Okinawa and on Kadena, I feel like I needed something from legal for a vehicle. Um, yeah, the power of attorney all. maybe. You, yeah. Right, right. So the powers of attorney and that's, that's kind of my understanding. And then when I re-enlisted because legal gave me the briefing, but I'm not, yeah, I know that there are officers and paralegals, but I'm not really sure of the aid that they really have to offer unless you were potentially in trouble with the um, with the exemption of the ADC, which I'd never utilized, but that they are a resource uh, not assigned to the typical legal unit. Is that correct? So they're 
like a subunit so that there's no conflict of interest, if you will. Um, mm. Other sure. than that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, no, they're independent, right? They don't belong to the to the to the wing. Mm. Um, they're just totally separate uh, because they work. They definitely work for the, for the airmen, hundred percent confidentiality and everything like that. So, um, good. So, the, and again, I, I just because I I want to know and I want to make sure that you know our maybe our career field, the people that are watching this, that we get a better because a lot of times we just get so. Um, stuck in our world and that's just the a little world view just to steal a, a, a lesson concept from <laughs> our little world view is just stuck to that office right so we get paperwork we're kind of like disconnected from what's happening in the legal office and it's like all right so we sometimes we don't it person got in trouble we got to process it and that's it right so we regardless of what squadron they're from regardless this is we're just processing it and that's it and sometimes when we go to court we could potentially get in trouble with being too disconnected from what's actually happening in the unit from what's actually happening in the air in, in the overall air force right it, and it could potentially hurt our case if we're not really um understanding of the day-to-day -day operations of every single unit and what they even know about what the legal office is what the legal office can offer uh, what are the airmen like um, all of those different things so i'm curious to know whether you interacted with anyone from the legal office outside of the legal office like have you seen them down in the community have you had like a paralegal buddy maybe a five six if you do five six or anywhere else um <laughs> around the base you're the first one. <laughs> okay. 10 years and uh, you as my boss and while we were teaching, uh, you're my first interaction of actually having a direct line to paralegal. Actually, there was one other individual and that was because they cross-trained out of paralegal to do fleet management and analysis. Yeah, and I asked them, because I, I talked to you about this before about I, I've had the thoughts of cross-training into paralegal, um, but he didn't have a lot of whole nice things to say about it. Um, well, come on up. Come on down, Sergeant Lust. We'll take you. I'll vouch <laughs> for you. I'll make sure that I'll <laughs> Sergeant Lust. Well, let me try to go my other crossroads that I'm attempting first, and then maybe if, if that falls through, we'll see uh, how many tech slots are open. <laughs> Um, I have but yeah. nothing but great things to say about the paralegal field. But and anyways, go ahead. I'm sorry. But yeah, so I I only got a small hint of that because I only met and knew the guy for like two months. You were my real first experience of having someone that was of that career field outside of going to the legal office. And that was my only interaction I've really had with him short of the initial briefings where they have to come and talk and the very 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 few odd things that hey you need a power of attorney to buy or sell a vehicle or you know go into the adc because of things that have happened okay and sergeant lay anything different than that 
Um, nope. So only one story I saw some of the career field out on a weekend. And uh, yeah, I was just like, you guys should probably just stop talking. <laughs> uh, from the from, So paralegals. I'm not going to say if they were paralegals or lawyers, but oh. uh, yeah, I mean, they were young and they were just talking about, you know, the good time that was had the night before. Um, but I'm like, like, I know who you guys are. I've seen you guys. You guys just sh- sh- stop talking. <laughs> oh, wow. So, okay. So that's, in- that's interesting then because one's, did you look at it differently, right? Just because of their position and, and, and what their job was. Did right, you think right. If they would have been maintainers, would you have had that same reaction? Probably not, right? Because it's almost more of what I knew to be normal. Um, yeah. And they, okay. it wasn't anything illegal or immoral that they were discussing. It was just, you know, young kids having fun. <laughs> Right. Well, there's a certain standard, right? I think that goes along with being an Air Force attorney or a certain standard that goes with being an Air Force paralegal. I think. So, I believe, right? Yeah, that, that, was, that was a good catch. Like, yeah, that you caught on my perception of and how those standards might be different based on the, the jobs we hold. Okay, interesting. Well, that's good. And, and yeah, I mean, that's our hope is that we are being held to that standard because we're trying to hold everybody else to that standard through doing Article 15s in courts. So that's always been my, that's always been my thing too. We've got to make sure that we're doing everything by the book, by the rules, um, because we are holding other people accountable. Um, so I've got one more question. So the last question has to do with how would you say that vehicle maintenance is different than the rest of the year? Ooh, ooh, okay. So since I recently retrained and <laughs> um, religious affairs or the chaplain corps, from what you described is similar to the legal department and that is that our officer side don't commonly have previous experience in the military or in a squadron. Um, And until last year, we were a retrain only field as well for the NCO portion or the enlisted side. So it is night and day different from my experience in vehicle maintenance where your uniform is sharp, you know how to wear it, you've been corrected on how to wear it because you have that military experience. The the processes in vehicle maintenance is so checks and balances like you don't have somebody PCSing without having all of their duties transferred over to somebody else. It's just right. And to be cheesier for a back lack of better terms, like it's a well-oiled machine. There are standards, there are procedures, like things don't get missed. Um, the training you're, you have this long to do your CDCs, no ifs, ands, or buts. You have this long to conduct your five level. Like we're all staying late if it doesn't happen. 
it was, it's so different from my now current job. I, I showed up to my first duty location and, um, you know, just timing of it, but my supervisor was on maternity leave for three months. She went like the week I got there. And so it's just me with some officers that don't know the military. And I come from a pretty structured 10, nine years. And, um, so that has been very interesting. I, I can't say how it's different from like the rest of the air force, besides the fact that I know where I am now is not what I was used to in what I thought was the actual air force being vehicle maintenance. Right. <clears throat> Sergeant Lust, <laughs> I you know I don't I don't want to interject, so why wait? Um, that's a good question. It's hard because it depends on what you compare it to, and really, do you have that outreach to see? Luckily, we're PME instructors, so we get to dabble and see what different career fields are like, and we're very much like the maintainers in the Air Force, but not as tough. I don't want to say as tough. I don't, I don't know how to describe it. Because you hear all the stories from our aircraft maintainers that come through Airman Leadership School. And it's like, as a vehicle maintainer, I sit there and think like, man, I got a good life. I work banker's hours. Uh, you know, if, if something happens to a vehicle, I'm not going to go to jail for it because it's not up in the air flying at three to 400 miles an hour that could possibly kill someone. Yes, you can possibly kill someone. We know the repercussions of what happens if we have poor maintenance. Uh, but it's not nearly as bad as what you hear from, from everyone else. So compared to the rest of the Air Force, yeah, I mean, we have our run-of-the-mill bad supervisors, bad leadership, just like every other career field does. Everyone's going to have a different story about what their experience was like. But compared to the rest of the military, I would very liken ourselves more to the maintenance side of things compared to the regular day-to-day -day operational jobs elsewhere. Um, we're definitely out there. We're knuckle busters. We're out there to get our vehicles fixed, to keep everyone operating because we literally support the entire base. I will venture to always ask anyone who thinks they don't need vehicle maintenance, cool, how are you gonna get an aircraft to a hangar or how are you gonna get patients from one place that they're at, like at their house to the hospital because they had a heart attack? How are you gonna get fuel to jets? Um, you can't really do a lot without VM because of the support that we provide. Um, and that's where it's just, uh, I think we vary, but we don't just because of the fact that uh, I think we're very in tune with how we support everyone else. Um, we just go about things a little bit differently than a lot of other units do when it comes to the maintenance world of how we treat our people I felt like that for the most part, I've been treated a lot more fairly than from the stories that I've heard of airmen and maintenance. Because when you're one of 150, 200 airmen that are attached to one aircraft, 
you they might bat an eye and be like, oh, whatever, it's, and pass you off along. Whereas we're not that spread out with VM. You know, we might have, uh, you know, 40, 50, 60 GIs in a shop and everyone gets to know each other. So we have that better culture when it comes to maintenance in general. So, okay. Awesome. Well, this is, uh, this is very interesting. Uh, definitely very interesting uh, to get the perspective um, from vehicle maintenance. And I know that our career field will, will certainly uh, gain something from definitely from this um, and just knowing more about different career fields and, 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 and how they uh, contribute to the mission and everything like that. So, and that's all I have. That's all the questions that I had. And again, I think it was definitely very educational and very informative. So um, thank you. Definitely thank you both for once again for agreeing to do this. We kind of went a little bit over um, over an hour, but uh, it was good. Not hurt my feelings. You know me. I'm always here to talk. So that's right yes you are yes i am uh, <laughs> yeah, oh. thank you for the opportunity gentlemen it was uh it was fun nice to reflect on what it was like in vehicle maintenance now that my nails are grown and my hands aren't dirty and that's right you've uh, detached detached yourself <laughs> i'm on the same track here soon but uh hopefully next month I'll get a retraining advisory and I can start seeing if uh, I can take these tech sergeant out slots and use them. Yeah. That's right. I don't know if we have any para any tech uh, tech sergeant paralegal left, but I can maybe make a phone call or something. I don't know. Let me know. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I got to get past getting shut down being a flyer first. Oh, that's right. So you got to do that. And then computers, right? You trying to do go to comm still? No. Nah. I'm past that. Force. <laughs> I'm recruiting you to the space force. Oh, that's yeah. right. I'm a space operator over there. I'll be more than happy to come your way. I'm a space uh, operator. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? As long as there's a racetrack nearby, I'll be happy. <laughs> there you go. You can create one in the moon or on Mars or something. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Let me know how I'm going to get 93 unleaded over there. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's not going to be that. And yeah, not the air to actually, you know, create some spark in the engine either. <laughs> All right, well, awesome, everyone. Well, Sergeant Lay, have a, have a good night. Thank you. Have a good day, Sergeant Lust. <laughs> Sergeant Lust, well, have a good yeah, day. One morning, so I got a full day ahead of me. Thank you once again for this opportunity. It's glad to see both your faces. Um, I miss both of you, so. Well, I miss you too, Sergeant Lust. Yeah. <laughs> Take care and uh, continue developing our, our young airmen. I'll try. <laughs> All right.